Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. In keeping with the Buddha's encouragement to ensure that these teachings are freely offered to all, we do not have any set dues or fees associated with any of our classes or media. In an effort to sustain our ability to do so, we ask that you contribute via our website at againstthestreamnashville.com by clicking the Donate tab, or via the mobile app Venmo by sending a donation to the username at ATS Nashville. Enjoy. Last week, if you were here, I continued a series of talks I've been giving on what's called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And I talked about really the goal of the Buddha's teachings and him offering this teaching on mindfulness meditation was to help us to find contentment. There can oftentimes in these Buddhist circles be a lot of emphasis on what Carl Jung calls the shadow side of our human experience, which is the stressful, difficult, disturbing aspects of what it means to be human. But the reason why we look at that to begin with is because we want to look at the ways that we suffer so we can find the causes of the suffering. And we want to understand the causes of how we suffer so we can find a way to free ourselves from that suffering. And so a lot of our suffering, which is kind of a big word, but a lot of our stress is manufactured by how we think about things. And so a lot of mindfulness is really aimed at helping us to find contentment through this awareness that we develop in mindfulness practice. And not only awareness, but really these three things that we develop. One is presence, the other is awareness, And the third is acceptance. Presence is living with more availability and access to a wider range of our day-to-day experiences. So living with more availability and access. You know, and this means that we just show up more often for more of our lives. The more that we practice living intentionally or the more that we practice just living with mindfulness, it means that we show up uh, and we show up for more of our lives. And obviously, I think when I'm on autopilot, I don't show up for the parts of my life that are difficult and the parts of my life that are challenging and the parts of my life I would rather avoid. And so with mindfulness comes oftentimes rude awakenings. It means that we are present with what's unpleasant. And it means that uh, we're able to embrace, I believe, more of our humanity in being able to show up for what's difficult. Because so much of what's difficult, I think if we were to kind of go around and have a conversation, I think so many of the most beautiful parts of my life have come through ways that I've showed up for what's been difficult in my life. And so um, presence means that we show up to more of our life experience, but also just we try to make a commitment to be here more often. The definition of mindfulness from the original Pali Sanskrit when translated is it means to remember the ground. And what we often forget is that we're here. You know, where I, uh, you know, when I don't have awareness, it means that I'm usually off in the future, preparing, obsessing about something that may or may not happen. I'm in the past, remembering all of the things that I could have done or should have done or wish I would have done or things that other people should have done. 
right? And so we uh, forget the present because we get caught up, we get lost, and that it's not our fault. We know this even in neuroscience, they call this the uh, default mode network, that when left to our own devices, consciousness kind of ends up in these kind of wandering, ruminating, worrying parts of our thinking. And so I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that, that presence isn't something that necessarily comes automatically, and it's not our fault that that doesn't happen, but that we can train and we can practice you know, showing up more frequently. And the more we train and practice that, the stronger that that's going to get. So we develop presence, but we also develop awareness. And I made the, uh, kind of drew the, connection last week about how it's often that you can be present but not necessarily aware. I give the example of like a a dog, right? Like a chocolate lab is very present but not very self-aware, right? And so it's easy for me to be here but not really necessarily be interested in what I'm thinking or feeling in the present moment. And so mindfulness also helps us to develop that kind of introspective awareness, looking into the mind, to say, okay, how is it that I'm viewing this experience? How is it that it's impacting me? How is it that I'm relating to what I'm experiencing? Most of our destructive habits build up when we lose clarity, when we act automatically, impulsively, right? And especially, we notice this, like, for example, around family members. I just spent a weekend with my in-laws Uh, which I don't act as destructively around as my own family (laughs) because it's usually when I'm in familiar experiences that's easy for me to lose awareness, right, because they have so much history to them that I act automatically. And I don't know about you, but when I act automatically, I often feel uh, regret (laughs) and I often, you know, wish that I hadn't done or said or acted in the way that I did. And so awareness is, um, you know, it, in, in some sense, it helps us to also remember to recognize what we value in our intentions. Living with intentionality demands that we have a little bit of self-awareness, meaning, you know, checking my values in a moment. We have a rationalizing mind, and they say this in neuroscience too, that your human brain, your prefrontal cortex, its job is to rationalize the drives of your emotional brain. So oftentimes when I am, uh, you know, craving or obsessing about getting something or figuring out some answer or winning some argument, my mind is going to rationalize that it's totally okay. It's like gives me the green light. It's like, go ahead. Do the argument, get the thing you want, avoid the thing you don't want, do it. And so self-awareness helps us to kind of stop and check and say, wait a second, do I really value what I'm doing? Because when we live outside of our values, we create that disharmony or we create that sense of disconnect. They say that self-esteem is built by doing esteemable acts. So if we want to feel good about ourselves, we've got to do things that we feel good about. And this is very different, I'll talk about this later, this is very different than this kind of Western view of morality that we are conditioned. It doesn't mean that there's a right and wrong way. You know, the Buddha is very clear, there's no such thing as right and wrong. 
You know, right and wrong is variable and changeable depending upon the conditions that we're in. So we've got to really look and be curious, okay, you know, for example, one of my favorite examples of this is like looking at my intention for compassion. I have an intention to be a compassionate person. I believe in compassion. I think it's important. I say, why live if you don't have compassion? But what compassion looks like is very different in different circumstances. <laughs> you know, compassion may be saying very loudly no to someone, and compassion may be saying, I forgive you, come over, we'll talk about it. So we use awareness to help us to kind of assess or to discern what is this experience, how is it affecting me, and what's needed, what is the compassionate response, and what do I value to help us to remember to recognize our values. And then, of course, the third quality that we develop through mindfulness is acceptance. Acceptance just means living with more balance in a way. Um, the Buddhist word for this is, I feel like, more accurate. It's, the word is upekka, and upekka means there in the middleness. So there in the middleness has this kind of flavor of being with experiences without having to fix, change, or control them, or without pushing away the experience, or with clinging, without clinging and obsessing and fixating and gripping into the experience. And that's, that's one of those that I always feel like is an easier said than done. But with practice, it's what we develop. We develop that ability to sit with, right? Even just physically, like looking at what we did. If you look at like a meditating person, they're sitting quietly with their eyes closed. And one of the jokes I like to make a lot in here is that one of the worst punishments in our country is solitary confinement. You really want to torture someone, put them in a room by themselves. And so sitting and developing that ability to sit with our restlessness or that part of the mind that wants to do something or to fix something or to change something and just telling that part of the mind, not right now. It's okay. Right now I'm just here. I'm with that discomfort. I'm with that restlessness. I'm here. And it's okay to be here and to not do that thing right this moment, right? To be in that uh, kind of that there in the middleness of our experience. Uh, I love Alan Watts says, whether we like it or not, change comes. And the greater the resistance, the greater the pain. Buddhism perceives the beauty of change, for life is like music in this. If any note or phrase is held for longer than its appointed time, the melody is lost. Thus, Buddhism may be summed up in two phrases, let go and walk on. Drop the craving for self, for permanence, for particular circumstances and go straight ahead with the movement of life. And so how do we do this? Right? We do this through this training of mindfulness. The Buddha called it sati bhavana. Bhavana means cultivation of mindfulness. Sati. And I like that word bhavana because bhavana is different than our kind of, we borrowed this Christian word meditation. You know, bhavana, it means cultivation. And the way that the Buddha would talk about the development of anything would be oftentimes using metaphors of like farm life, an agrarian kind of rural lifestyle where everything revolves around what you plant, what you harvest, right? the, the seeds that you water and tend to, that they all grow fruit. 
And whatever you practice, whatever you plant, whatever you water is getting stronger. It's going to grow. And so if we practice you know, some sport, we're going to get stronger at it. If we practice a language, we get stronger at it. If you practice obsession and worry and fear-based thinking and reactive thinking, you get stronger. Those grooves get built and they get reinforced. And we don't mean to. Again, it's not moralistic. It's not like I mean to do that. It's just that is what happens. And so we've got to be careful. And the way that we practice careful attention, yanaso manasakara, careful attention, is through the development of mindfulness. And mindfulness has two aims. One is to this kind of secular world, the Western, you know, American mindfulness explosion that's happening, really emphasizes this stress reduction. And it's important. Mindfulness does help to create spaciousness. It helps us to create a sense of being able to observe thoughts, feelings, and emotions so we don't react. Right? And those are those two kind of qualities, presence and acceptance. It creates that spaciousness. But mindfulness has something much more important that the Buddha was really interested in. Mindfulness helps us to create this awareness or liberating insight. As you sit and you watch the mind, as you look directly into the nature of the mind, you see your own thought behavior. You see how you think about things. You see how you, your perceptions distorted, how we don't view things quite how they are. We view things based on history, based on conditioning. We view things through the filter of emotion. So mindfulness kind of creates this inner map of the mind. It creates this inner map of how we experience emotion in our thoughts. So I just say, to kind of simplify that, is mindfulness supports insight. Insight is the capacity to gain an accurate and deep intuitive understanding of a person, place, thing, or experience. Right? So an accurate and deep intuitive understanding. One of my favorite quotes, a uh, guy named Manindraji, Joseph Goldstein's teacher who wrote this book, Mindfulness, Joseph Goldstein did. Manindraji, Joseph Goldstein's teacher, uh, said to him when he asked for meditation instructions, he, he kind of was asking him, why do people meditate? This was when it was early on in his career. Joseph Goldstein's teacher said, if you want to understand your mind, you have to sit down and watch it. Right? And so it's this understanding that we're really looking for. So where do we start? We start with the first foundation of mindfulness. We start by helping us to actually get a little bit of a break from the mind and to be able to pay attention to something else, like your breath. Right? It's kind of like setting a healthy limit at the beginning of the meditation where I said, set aside your plans and your memories. Focus on an anchor. Hearing, I'm breathing, I'm feeling. That's all that's happening. I'm hearing, I'm breathing, I'm feeling. Let your thoughts kind of come and go. But try to develop a little bit of some collectedness of awareness. And this is something that can both be very frustrating and very liberating. Because this is the thing I think most people feel they're no good at in meditation. It's like, my mind won't calm down. It won't shut up. It won't stop. And a lot of that is honestly, it's just practice. It's the more that you kind of train and practice. And it doesn't take much 10, 15 minutes a day to start. 
for a period of time. I, I tell people, don't tell yourself you're going to meditate for the rest of your life. Right? If you're anything like me, you're going to set too high of a goal and just feel like you can't accomplish it. But sit every day for two weeks, ten minutes a day. Your ability to collect your attention and to find your breath and to tell your mind not right now and to really focus on the breath for a period of time, that will get stronger. And the more that you do that, you start to feel a little bit more stable. you got that boundary with your mind where your mind has a little bit of space. So you start by collecting the awareness, developing breath meditation or using another anchor. And you also develop body awareness, bringing your awareness into the body to notice the wide array of sensations. We have hearing and seeing and smelling and tasting and feeling these sense gates. And we have a lot of disconnection from the body culturally. We're kind of ahead on wheels. We like to conceptualize. We like to know about things. Right. Have you ever been suffering about something and you know why you're suffering, you know what you're doing, but for some reason you're still not stopping it? We can know all day about why I'm doing something or what it is, but to know means to know and hear, to know, to feel. Those two words, to know and to feel, are actually the same word in Buddhism. And the word is Vedana, to know and to feel. And so you want to get into the feeling of what it's like to be you, the physical, the body experience. The body is intelligent. It's organically intelligent. It's got a nervous system. We think that the brain is the most intelligent, but the body has all of this digestive process, and the heart, the respiratory system. That's all connected through our nervous system, this thing called the vagal vagus nerve that runs from your brain stem down into your stomach. That's responsible for your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. Your body is a mind, and your mind is a body, right? So being able to bring our awareness into the body gives us some very interesting clarity. We tend to over, I tend to kind of confuse things up here. I over-intellectualize. I think about, I think about, I think about trying to feel about things, to feel with. And so when you start to do that, you get this kind of sense of the the Vedana or the feeling tone of your experience. You get to know this very primary like or dislike that develops that they call this feeling tone, which is just this sense of how, how am I impacted by what I'm experiencing? Does it feel exciting or pleasant? Is there some kind of uh, feeling of dislike or resistance to what I'm experiencing? Can that be felt and known? Or is it neutral? Is it neither pleasant or unpleasant? It's just kind of okay. And so we start to notice the impact of our experience. And then, you know, as we develop mindfulness, we keep practicing, we start to look at our mind itself. And this is what I want to elaborate on tonight. We start to look at our, uh, they call this mindfulness of mind states. Uh, which is a little bit generic. I like to look at this as your mental attitude or mood or the energetic quality of your mind. So one of the most beautiful things about a meditation practice is you can actually start to observe your own mind. You can see what it's up to. I like to kind of call this mental babysitting. 
Right? That's kind of what mindfulness is to some degree. Is your, I mean, it's not just the mind. It's the body, like we were talking about. It's, um, you know, it's feeling. It's the body. But it's also looking at your mental state, your mood, your attitude. This is one of the most subtle and most liberating parts of practice. It's subtle because your mood is kind of, or your attitude is, it's like wearing glasses, right? You don't necessarily, if you are someone that wears glasses, you don't necessarily think all day about the glasses that you're wearing, right? But every once in a while, you may notice like a little speck on them, and you'll kind of be like, oh, I got to clean that off, right? Every once in a while during your day, you'll notice what mood you're in, and you'll say, oh, I'm really tripping about some shit right now, right? And you'll have that awareness of your attitude. But it's very subtle and it's, it's so pervasive, the lens that we see our experience through. And so what are these themes or what are these attitudes of mind that we're really looking at? In traditional Buddhism, the Buddha would say three things you really want to look out for is when your mind is overcome by greed, when it's overcome by hatred, or when it's overcome by delusion. Three very powerful words, greed, hatred, and delusion. They call them the defilements or the kalesas, the three poisons. And so uh, if mindfulness is going to be liberating, if it's going to give us insight, we've got to kind of start to have this ability to look into our own mind to see what's coloring the experience. Being able, a simple way of putting this, let's just take the emotion of anger, right? Anger, uh, usually when I'm angry, I'm angry at a person, place, or thing, right? So anger is often out here. You know, I was trying to get to work, and there's the freaking CMA fest, and I took the way I always take at the same time I always go, and now I'm going to be late to work, and my boss told me I can't be late again, and now I'm, because of all of those conditions, anger arises in my mind. So if I lose awareness, if I'm just angry, the anger is going to act itself out. That's what emotions do, is they're kind of like software programs. They're old software programs. We have the same seven emotions as people do in East, Southeast Asia, as people do in Papua New Guinea, as people do in uh, remote parts of Serbia and Europe. All of us have the same emotions that date back thousands and thousands of years. These are an older part of our brain. So when you're emotional, your emotion's going to plea its case. Right? It's like having an, a lawyer that's in here arguing for itself. And you're going to kind of adopt that attitude. You're going to have the angry attitude. And then you're going to see everything through the angry attitude. You ever notice that when you're kind of in a bad mood, everything is pissing you off? Well, maybe you're looking at it through that lens, right? And then you see someone that's all happy and like glowing, and you're like, oh my God, this fucking person. <laughs> and their positivity, ruining my day, right? And so it's a very important but very subtle part of looking at the mind, is looking at our attitude. This is what the Buddha says about it in the discourse. He says, in practicing mindfulness of the mind, one knows a lustful, greedy, or craving mind to be lustful, greedy, or craving, and a mind without or absent of lust, greed, and craving to be without lust, greed, and craving. 
One knows an aversive, resentful, or ill will filled mind to be a mind of aversion, resentment, or ill will, and a mind without to be without. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, confused, or bewildered, and a mind without delusion to be without. One also knows the presence or absence of a contracted mind, and one knows the presence or absence of a distracted mind, and he goes on to name a few other mental states. And so the emphasis in the Buddhist teaching on our attitude of mind, again, is on this kind of greed, hatred, and delusion, is looking at um, what we would call the kind of trouble zones, the areas where we get into a lot of trouble. Greed can be anything from, you know, when I think of greed, I think of like addiction to power or money, right? It's kind of an intense type of word. But it can be also an anticipation, like waiting for something to happen. Right? I get a little bit greedy at the end of like a group like this. I'll get that feeling of kind of leaning into the next thing. Like, what am I going to go do next? I'm going to go... I gotta go get some food, and I'm gonna go watch some Netflix, and it's like kind of like hurry up, hurry up. Let's get on with this. Let's get on to the next thing. Hatred can be anything from outright rage and anger to subtle aversion or even irritability. It can also be resentment that comes into the mind. Uh, delusion can be anything from being checked out or kind of caught in a simple fantasy which they call non-afflictive delusion in the Buddhist psychology text, meaning it's not that big of a deal <laughs> type of delusion, just kind of being checked out or simple fantasy or it could be kind of a comparing mind the delusion of I am better than, I am worse than the, the Buddha calls I am equal to, he also calls that a delusion because it's the conceit, he says, of I am. Com when we compare ourselves to another, we enter delusion, is what he says. I'm better than, I'm worse than. Just the act of comparing. Or delusion could be self-obsession, uh, self-consciousness, self, uh, this kind of uh, insecurity that develops. And so it's important as I say these things, I want to actually back up and look at, like I talked earlier about this ten tendency to moralize and to look at these mind states as good or bad. So this will happen often in meditation practice is when you notice that you may have been sitting here and be like, damn, dude, I was totally looking forward to going to eat pizza and you just ruined it by calling that greedy, right? <laughs> you know, but that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we want to just look into the mind because when we lean, or in this example, when we're leaning into the next thing, we have a hard time being present, aware, and accepting, right? And so it's not about like, whether you're doing it right or you're a good or bad Buddhist. It's just about like, what is like, going to help you find presence, awareness, and acceptance, and what is getting in the way of it. Um, Joseph Goldstein says, although discerning what is skillful and what's unskillful in your mind is basic to the Buddha's teaching, in our Western culture, it's a very delicate process. For many people, it's an easy step from recognizing that a particular attitude, mood, or mental state like greed or hatred is being unwholesome to jump into the feeling that you're a bad person for having it or that somehow it's wrong for the mind state to even be there in the first place. 
This pattern of reaction simply leads to more self-judgment, more aversion, and more suffering. It's not a helpful cycle. So we really are up against this kind of conditioning of the Western mind. And I think it's informed by having this kind of legalist ethics culture, this kind of commandment law, sinfulness and righteousness, which in the Eastern thought we don't have. There's no such thing as sin, ultimate sin, righteousness. Those things don't exist. It's just about what causes and creates and perpetuates suffering for myself and others and what leads to its end. What's skillful and what's unskillful, right? Not what's sinful and what's righteous. And so, like I said earlier, what's skillful and unskillful looks different at different times. And so mindfulness, we really have to look into your mental state. If I'm being trapped in the corner by someone that's trying to hurt me, anger is a very skillful emotion to act out. But if my boss tells me to send another fucking email and I don't want to do it because it's a minute past the time I clock out, anger is probably not going to be a skillful emotion to act out. You know, not just because I'll probably lose my job, but the impact on him. Is it the compassionate thing to do? So we really want to look at our mind state as a way of like looking at this as something that's empowering, not something that's damning or judging. Uh, Pema Chodron says that it is only when we begin to relax with ourselves that meditation becomes a transformative process. Only when we relate with ourselves without moralizing, without harshness, without deception, can we let go of harmful patterns. Without a loving and kind attitude, letting go of old habits becomes abusive. This is an important point. And I think it is the importance of letting something be before we let it go. The importance of kind of being with a difficult mind state and acknowledging it and saying, oh, I see you, anger. You're here. You're really afraid or you really are scared. You're really hurt. And being able to be with that emotion, to tolerate it, to care about it, right? And then we can work to say, all right, Andrew, you've been angry. You've been with this anger for 30 minutes. What's it going to take to move beyond it? What's it going to take to transform this attitude today? You know, but when we jump and we attack our mind with our mind, it gets bigger. And the way I like to look at this also is uh, in kind of psychotherapy, Freud developed this kind of these set of what he called defense mechanisms, right? And I like to look at greed, hatred, and delusion, these pretty heavy words, really as like defenses, Um, And this word that I like to use instead of defense is fortification, that these things, the way that we rationalize our behavior or when we uh, are reactive and controlling of other people, some of the ways that these greed, hatred, and delusion show up in our mind, they're meant to try to protect us, keep us safe. For example, like if I'm greedy, I must have some fear that I'm going to run out of something or that there's not enough of it. So there's some mentality that there's a lack of abundance. There's a fear. And so I'm greedy. Right? If I am uh, angry or resistant, there must be some, something so painful about an experience that I feel like I can't tolerate it or be with it. And so I lash out against it. Right? So there's a fear there, too. 
Um, so fortification, the definition of that is it's the action of building a defensive wall or other reinforcement to strengthen a place against attack. So I want to say this, in, this may be going in left field a little bit, but a lot of our greed, hatred, and delusion, or a lot of our mental states and attitudes that come up were developed at points where we felt weak and vulnerable and were attacked in our life. So points when we were hurt by other people, where we experienced shame or abandonment or betrayal, or when we experienced pain, usually a lot younger in life. And we've grown up and we've developed, but these emotional parts of our brain maybe haven't been fully processed. They haven't really been worked through. And so the same defenses flare up when the same situations or something that looks like them, you know, when we come into contact with something like that. You know, so like, uh, for example, you know, changes in your friend group. If you have a close group of friends and someone's maybe gossiping or you're not invited to something, that, that's something that you're familiar with. That's something that I, at least, have had experience with, feeling neglected or abandoned or left out. And so a lot of my defensiveness, my tendency to maybe minimize that or to be passive-aggressive, Right, or whatever comes out of that, usually has some historical significance. And so what we want to do is, and I say that to just say that like, we got to understand that a lot of our defensiveness comes from a need to defend something. But that what we're defending might be old. Right? What we're defending might be an old pain or an old wound that no longer serves us. And so it means that when you let down your defense, you're opening yourself up to be vulnerable again. And so sometimes also when you build a defense, you keep the pain in the fort. Right? So you build up a big wall around it, and it's like, oh, I'm not going to show you this part of how I'm hurt or how I'm in pain. But then you keep it all to yourself. <laughs> right? And so... Um, you know, someone, I was talking to someone about like, uh, this idea of toxic masculinity and how kind of our culture, uh, we could talk a lot about all sorts of genders and dynamics, but I was just talking about this one particular uh, form of conditioning around like, not sharing what is vulnerable. You know, and this idea that kind of men are supposed to be strong and competent. You know, and so one of the only emotions that a lot of men are kind of conditioned to believe they can express is anger, right? Because anger means I have control, I'm capable, I'm the one that takes care of things, you know, and that there's often a lot of other emotions, because we have, like, a ton of them that aren't being expressed, that are kind of stuck in the fort. Sadness, fear, you know, even to some degree maybe excitement. I remember being a young kid and being shamed for being too excited about things. Yeah. So uh, it's just an interesting thing to look at that what comes into the mind is conditioned. And that's what the Buddha is saying is that it's conditioned. So if it's conditioned, it can be unconditioned. And the way that we start is by being, like Pema Chodron said, we have to learn how to relax with ourselves without moralizing, without harshness, without deception. And we have to bring this quality of a kind and gentle awareness into the mind to understand what we're suffering about so we can transform it. 
And so the, another thing that the Buddha talks about is noticing in this discourse, he says, to notice the presence and absence. You'll notice that he says, for example, if I can find it, oh, it's over here. In practicing mindfulness of mind, one knows a lustful, greedy, or craving mind to be lustful, greedy, or craving, and a mind without lust, greed, or craving to be without. And so, we, uh, this is an interesting thing to notice. Like, for example, notice how many mental states are absent right now. Like, are you lonely right now? Maybe you are, but maybe you're not. Are you angry right now? Maybe you are, but maybe you're not. Are you sad right now? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Are you uh, lustful right now? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. If you are, I'm sorry, I probably embarrassed you internally. You know, what are you and what aren't you is an interesting reflection. I am not a lot of things, but the mind's negativity bias tends to notice what we are and has a hard time noticing what mind states aren't present. And this was a really helpful practice, although it's subtle and a little bit esoteric or weird. When I was feeling a lot of depression, which is the reason why I found my way in here and why I continued to practice, is because I came here during a time where I was experiencing a lot of depression. And when I was depressed, people experienced it differently, but it would hit me in waves. And I would get this kind of like agonizing feeling that it's always been this way, it's always going to be this way, I'm the only one that's this way. Right? This feeling of feeling really isolated and alone in my depression. And there would be these moments throughout the day when I really started practice, practicing mindfulness where it would lift. And it would always come back. I had pretty severe depression. But I was able to notice more often those moments when it lifted. And when I didn't have mindfulness as a practice, it would lift. And I would kind of like maybe just feel like, oh, this is how I should be or whatever. Not really take notice of that. And then it would come back. And I would just experience the coming back and the feeling of depression. I wouldn't experience the lifting of it. And at any point during the day, we notice with our mental moods and attitudes, our mind states, that they come and go. They all come and go. But some come very frequently. And when they're frequent visitors, it can feel like it's always been this way, it's always going to be this way, or I'm the only one that is this way. I want to read, if I can find, a quote by uh, Ajahn Chah. He's a Thai forest monk. He says, Within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into unhappiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. 
Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. (laughs) And I love that. Ajahn Chah has this other quote where he says that if you practice mindfulness, your mind will become still like a clear forest pool. He said, and all sorts of strange and wonderful creatures will come and drink from the pool. And this is really what equanimity is, or this balance acceptance. This ability to be in the middle of our experience is being able to be with our experience without identifying it as who I am or what I am. Or It's temporary. I've had so many moods and attitudes and moods throughout my life. I can't pinpoint any one of them as being who I am. Right? And so having this as a practice, as an aspiration, maybe not as something that feels right here tangible, but this ability to be with our mind and to be aware of our mind and to have this awareness of our passing moods and attitudes, not having to hold on to them when they come to visit as long. And so I guess the last thing I want to share before I open it up is Maybe a couple things. Mindfulness is also not just looking at what mind state is present, but it's also helping us to learn how to prevent the arising of mind states that don't serve us. And so, again, it's really hard to look at this if we tend to be moralistic because if we're looking at something like lust, for example, I like to give the example, if I'm lusting about someone, it's not immoral. That's just what the mind does. We idealize people. We're attracted to people. I'm married. I'm still attracted to people. I still find the human form attractive. Right? It's not because I'm bad or immoral. It's just because that's what the mind does. But if I'm lusting about someone, I'm like driving to work, that's not going to be a mind state that's going to help me at work. Right? (laughs) If I'm lusting about my wife and we're going to have sex together, that might be a mind state that helps me... (laughs) In that experience, right? And so again, we want to look at uh, being able to prevent mind states when they start to enter into the mind. To notice what they are and to be able to tell the mind not right now. To be able to ignore the mind. And that's a very important part of uh, a practice as well, is being able to kind of identify when you get lost. Another example I give a lot of times is when you think about your ex, right? The story about the ex almost never goes well. <laughs> the story about where they're at or how they're doing or how you're doing or how long it's been since it never goes well. So the story about the ex is one to watch out for. It may create all sorts of mind states. It may create craving, wanting. It may create resentment. It may create delusion. <laughs> Probably all three, right? But just being able to kind of notice that story and the impact it has on your mind and being able to tell your mind right when it starts to enter into the mind, not right now, and to be able to turn your attention to something else. Huge benefit, protective awareness. And sometimes the Buddha calls the mindfulness the guardian. And the way that he describes it, it's like a guardian at a tower entering the castle. And mindfulness is standing in the tower seeing who it lets in. Right? And so that's, that's also a huge benefit, protective awareness. Another way that we want to use mind states is it's actually 
very appropriate from a Buddhist perspective to gladden the mind, to try to create mind states. This is very different from, and it's, it's hard to talk about again, it's very different from positive thinking. We don't want to be uh, delusional and to try to you know, uh, use the mind as a way to just be delusional about what we think. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, getting too involved, he said, like in metaphysics or like the nature of the universe and like whatever, getting kind of out there in positivity land or that we can manifest things. That may or may not be true. That's just not what the Buddha taught. He didn't teach about manifesting things or whatever. But what he did say is that it's very important to develop a mind of kindness, a mind of gratitude, a mind of compassion, right? that these types of mind states are very important and that we need to kind of develop them. And so we do heart practices which some of y'all are familiar with, which is a form of meditation that's aimed at cultivating these wholesome mental states. That if you practice kindness, actually kindness shows up with more frequency. It's not just something that we believe in. It's not just something that happens spontaneously. It does at times, but it's something that we can cultivate and develop. Compassion, appreciation, or gratitude, those things are things that we want to invest in and practice. And uh, so those are kind of three ways of looking at mindfulness of the mind. Mindfulness of the mind can help you to notice what's present or what's in your mind. We call that introspective awareness. It can help you to prevent or to protect your mind from unwanted visitors. And it can also help you to gladden or lift your mind into a state of more kindness or compassion or gratitude. Uh, Another thing that helps with our mind state is... The Buddha says the words of a wise friend, suitable conversation and good friendship, he says. So one of the easiest ways to get out of greed, hatred, and delusion is to talk to someone that is, uh, call it wise association, someone that is interested in personal development or spiritual growth or recovery or whatever you want to call it. Someone that's not going to necessarily just allow you to vent and sign off on all of it, but someone that's also going to listen and be compassionate and to help steer you in the direction of a spiritual path that you're on together. So that's a, a helpful way to work with it. Um, using the practice itself, one of the ways that I found this mindfulness of mental states or attitudes or moods to be helpful is to look at like throughout the day to start to develop a vocabulary to name some of the states. So in emotional intelligence, they say there are four steps that help you to regulate emotion. Identify it, access it or allow it, understand what it wants, and then manage it. The first stage is to identify. When I'm not aware that I'm emotional or when I'm not aware that a certain mind state's present, I can't really do anything about it. I just act it out. So being able to start to kind of gently note or notice, oh, there's wanting, there's craving in my mind. There must be something that's either unpleasant that's here or something that I really want. To be able to practice that um, can be helpful, coming up with your language for these states or thoughts. Um, And we'll maybe talk more about this next time. It's a big topic. could probably give three or four talks on mindfulness of mind. Um, But I want to take some time. We've got uh, 15 minutes left in the group. We'll take about 10 minutes. I'd love to hear some discussion, questions, conversation.